Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Communities in Atlantic Canada are preparing to take a hit from Hurricane Lee. Residents being warned about the risk of potential power outages. The land passage that links New Brunswick and Nova Scotia is vital for transportation of food and other goods. If it floods, that would be unthinkable. Nova Scotia's vulnerable lowland rides out another storm. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... Video games as therapy. Kids learn from their play. How gaming might help kids with ADHD. TV disrupted. There's really going to be that hole in late night television. No actors, no writers, but the fall season soldiers on. And the big book of Musk. The impression of him is that he is, as I said, like a man baby. Walter Isaacson's Elon bio is out, but should you read it? All today on Day 6... The Books to Read on Mars edition. And of course, the main topic of conversation all week is Lee. Is Lee, yeah. Definitely that is the elephant in the room. We should talk about that right off the top. Yes, we should. The Maritimes are bracing for the first big storm of the season. Lee is now a post-tropical storm. It's set to make landfall sometime today. But its effects are already being felt. For many Nova Scotians, it feels like Groundhog Day. Almost exactly a year ago, Hurricane Fiona swept into the eastern side of the province as a post-tropical storm. Fiona caused hundreds of millions of dollars in damage in Nova Scotia. At least three deaths are attributed to the storm. Meteorologists are saying Lee will be weaker than Fiona, but Lee poses a specific threat that Fiona didn't. Lee is trending more towards the west of Nova Scotia, which is where you find the Isthmus of Chignecto. The Isthmus is the narrow strip of land between Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. It's also the only land that connects Nova Scotia to the rest of the country. That area between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia uh, has a $50 million a day uh, goods and services that travel across it. The accelerating frequency of extreme storms in the region has locals worried that the aging infrastructure that keeps the Isthmus dry might not be able to take much more. This Isthmus is at considerable risk of climate change. It's fairly low-lying land and also has pretty major transportation infrastructure. If Nova Scotia was to be cut off from the rest of Canada, this is where it would happen, caused by rising sea levels in an area known for the highest tides in the world. David Kogan is the mayor of Amherst, Nova Scotia, which is just on the Nova Scotia side of the Isthmus of Chignecto. Mayor Kogan, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Well, thank you, Brent. Thank you for having me. When you heard that Hurricane Lee was heading in your direction, what did you think? Well, the first thing I thought about was what phase of the moon are we in? Because we know when a hurricane comes our way, a storm surge up the Bay of Fundy could cause very significant flooding if it's associated with a very high tide, which occurs at the full moon. So I was very relieved to find out we weren't in that particular phase of the moon. 
But if we had had a full moon, what would that storm surge possibly do to the Isthmus of Chignecto? What would it mean? Well, the worry would be that it would be high enough surge to breach the dikes. The Acadian dikes from the 1700s are no longer adequate to hold back the Bay of Fundy. The Isthmus of Chignecto was actually below sea level, and it was land that the Acadians reclaimed for farmland by building dikes. And they're no longer adequate. And we've been um, working toward getting these dikes made much higher because we know that we're in a very vulnerable situation here with the Isthmus of Chignecto. I've driven across the Isthmus many times, but for listeners who aren't familiar with it, could you describe it for us, David? What, what do you see when you're driving through? What you see is a very flat, low area of land, and there are actually two marshes involved when you drive on the Trans-Canada Highway. You have the Tantramar Marshes on our side and the Sackville Marshes on the uh, New Brunswick side. And uh, these are, uh, as I said, they're below the sea level. So if the dikes are breached and water gets in, that whole stretch of land will be totally submerged underwater. But it's about 24, 23 kilometers from the Bay of Fundy to the other body of water, which is the Northumberland Strait. Is it possible that those two bodies of water could be joined by a flood? That's what the experts are telling us. And uh, Nova Scotia would become an island and completely cut off from New Brunswick and thus the rest of uh, mainland Canada. And that would shut down the Trans-Canada Highway. It would do more than that. It would shut down the highway. It would shut down the rail line. It would interrupt the power grid because Nova Scotia power, New Brunswick power, they transmit power across that border and into Quebec as well. So it would have an impact on the power grid as well as all the transportation. Hurricane Fiona hit Nova Scotia almost exactly a year ago. There were casualties, people died, it caused extreme damage in some parts of the province. Amherst managed to avoid the worst of it. But what was going through your mind when the Fiona ordeal ended and the storm lifted? Well, I felt like we had dodged a bullet. We had a lot of trees down, which caused power lines to go down. So we suffered from power outages uh, that were very uh, bothersome and inconvenient. But no loss of life in our area, and, and actually very little structural damage. But I felt, my goodness, we have just dodged a bullet. If that had occurred with a very high tide, we could have had the Isthmus flood, and that would be absolutely disastrous. It sounds like Fiona changed the way that you think about risk in your area. Well, it sure put an urgency on it. And uh, since that time, I've had meetings with Premier Houston and uh, continued discussions with my colleague, Mayor Black of, of Tanchamar, which was Sackville, because their communities as threatened as Amherst is. And so, you know, all we can do as municipal leaders is advocate for the work to get done. The costs of whatever ultimately they do to improve the height and quality of the dike system is fiscally way beyond anything that, that a municipality can deal with. So it's up to the two provinces and it's up to the federal government. The initial plan that we were informed of after the study was done was that it would be a five-year planning phase followed by a five-year development phase. And what we're trying to do is see whether that time frame can be shortened because we know that we could get a storm 
this weekend that could flood the isthmus or it could be six months from now or two years from now and we don't feel it's safe to wait that five to ten years uh, that that they're telling us it should take how far into the future would those new fortifications still be usable? We're entering a time, as you know, when, when sea levels are rising, when there's a greater frequency of these storms, and when the storms themselves have more power. So what kind of a long-term solution do you think there is? Or do you think it's inevitable that, that Nova Scotia becomes an island? Sea level rise will ultimately lead to a permanent breaching of the dikes if nothing is done, but it's felt that it would take until approximately the year 2100 before that is an actual occurrence. It's the storm surge that seems to be more of our urgent concern. The uh, experts were telling us in the update that we got uh, after the plan was presented that this would be about uh, a 75-year plan and that uh, the dikes would need further work somewhere as that time approached. What could happen if Nova Scotia is cut off from the rest of Canada? Well, what you would see is the disruption of the transportation corridor between Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, thus the rest of Canada. And currently between the highway and the CN rail line, 50 to $55 million worth of goods goes through that corridor every day. That's $35 billion a year. So the disruption of that would be economically disastrous. But one has to look at another issue that somebody brought to my attention, which is how much of the movement across that corridor is food? Mm -hmm. And how long would it take Nova Scotians to run out of food? And I was told that we could see our supermarkets completely empty within five days of a flood of the isthmus. So the, the concerns are very, very real and the problems created by a flood would be very disastrous. David, how are you and your family preparing for Lee? We're putting together enough of an emergency preparation so that if we have a power outage, that we have food, water, batteries, and can run our our phones, things like that. And uh, the isthmus flooding issue is beyond anything that we can do here locally. 25 to 33% of Amherst is considered to be in the flood zone. And uh, we know we may have to prepare to accept moving people out of that uh, area and into another higher part of the town. David Kogan, thank you very much for talking to us. All the best to you and the people of Amherst today. Well, thank you very much, Brent. Uh, It's great. Any way we can get this word out is very important to us. Take care. Thank you. David Kogan is the mayor of Amherst, Nova Scotia. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. We are absolutely encouraging people to get protected, uh, both with COVID-19 vaccine and the flu shot. Health Canada has approved an updated COVID-19 vaccine, and it's recommending that all Canadians over six months of age get a jab. It is unclear how many people will take them up on that. Only 5.7% of Canadians have had a booster in the last six months. Public health officials are hoping people will be more likely to get vaccinated during flu season, particularly with COVID cases on the rise and the emergence of a new variant. The shots are expected to become widely available later this fall. And... It is a bit of a shock. We don't know who's going to take over in the long term. And until we do, we don't know whether this means a change of strategy. 
Oil giant BP is looking for a new CEO. The company's former boss, Bernard Looney, stepped down this week after failing to properly disclose to the BP board personal relationships with colleagues. His abrupt departure has prompted questions about whether BP will follow through on its already shaky commitment to shift its business model away from fossil fuels. Looney had publicly endorsed a net zero transition by 2050. He also came under fire for scaling back BP's climate initiatives in 2022 at a time when the company's profits had doubled. The International Energy Agency says none of the world's oil giants is moving fast enough to address the climate crisis. Still to come on day six, TV gears up for the fall season in spite of major labor disruptions. What's on, what's not, and why content is still plentiful. Coming up on day six. Viewers still have that appetite for the legacy TV that they were used to watching. So, I don't know, should I read it? You know, when I first started this book, Elon Musk's mother, May, says to me, the danger for Elon is that he becomes his father. And indeed, he had this psychologically rough father who would make Elon stand in front of him as he berated him for more than an hour, would go from light to dark moods. Well, that happens too with Elon Musk, and that's sometimes the way he treats people. You know, he gets stuff done, but that doesn't excuse the behavior sometimes. That's journalist Walter Isaacson talking about the subject of his latest book, Elon Musk. Musk is outspoken, controversial, prominent personality, and very, very, very powerful. Elon Musk is the richest person in the world with an estimated net worth of $250 billion. He is the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX and the owner of X, or Twitter, so he has a huge amount of influence on transportation, communications, social media, and defense. There are few people on Earth who wield as much power, and if you're wondering how he got there, Walter Isaacson's biography helps explain it. Walter Isaacson also wrote the very successful bio of Apple co-founder Steve Jobs. And our Day 6 Books columnist Becky Toyne joins us now to discuss his latest biography. It came out Tuesday. Its title is simply Elon Musk. Becky, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. I'm looking at the cover of this book, which is black with a close-up of Elon Musk's face. And I can't help but be reminded of this book, which you also brought in, the Steve Jobs biography, the Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs. Pretty much the same, but with a white background. Should we read anything into the fact that these book covers are so similar? Yes, we should. I wouldn't normally begin a review by talking about a completely different book, but I think that the publisher wants us to think about these books together. The uh, covers are the same, the even down to the hand on the chin of Steve Jobs right. and Elon Musk, except the Steve Jobs book's very beautiful. It's very Apple design-esque, like a white iPod from back in the day. And then the Elon Musk book is black. And honestly, it, you feel like Darth Vader has just walked on screen. <laughs> and that's how you're supposed to think of these two books as being in conversation with each other and being in opposition with each other and just sort of thinking about them together. And the Elon Musk book does, in fact, open with uh, quotes by Elon Musk and one by Steve Jobs, which is the quote uh, by Steve Jobs that appears in the beginning of the Steve Jobs book. Huh. The two men have a lot in common in terms of personality and the way they did business. Right. And and in terms of their profile globally in the, in the tech world, but are there similarities in how the two books have been received and reviewed thus far? 
There are. And I was very interested in that as well, because I remember reading the Steve Jobs book when it came out, which was about 12 years ago now. And for context, it's worth mentioning that Steve Jobs had just died when the book came right. out. So it came out in a different uh, in a different mood, a different environment, but also a different time. Right. And um, the reviews for the Steve Jobs book were overwhelmingly positive mm-hmm. in which they kind of discussed this man who was sort of a, a genius man, baby, tyrant, dictator, bully, um, who just had this incredible vision that didn't gel with the reality that we know, who pulled things out of the future and then pulled us with him into mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. a future of of his vision. Of and products, of products that, that people loved, too. Of products that people loved and technology that people embraced. But he did it not by being a nice guy. Oh. And what's so interesting to me is that, as some reviews have pointed out as well, actually, there are so many phrases in both books that describe the subject, Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. That if you just change the word Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and Apple and Tesla, they are interchangeable, completely interchangeable. Fascinating. The reviews for this book are much more negative, specifically in talking about Elon Musk's personality. And so like Walter Isaacson, I'm going to uh, make no analysis around that. But it's just it's interesting to me that, you know, this is a different time. It's 12 years later. Elon Musk is on Twitter all the time. So we have a line to what he is thinking and saying about things we know more about. About Elon Musk that we didn't need to learn from reading the book because he talks to us directly. Mm-hmm. So um, it's interesting to me that our perception of whether it's okay to be that kind of person, a successful person, has changed. Hmm. Let's talk about Isaacson for a moment because Walter Isaacson had to walk back a statement he made about a Ukrainian drone attack that Musk was involved with through his company Starlink. Isaacson retracted something that he reported. Do you think that that hurts his credibility? Yeah, so it was it was a big mistake. Um, I think uh, I think it reminds us all never to believe the first thing you read and always to go uh, check the facts. It also does support Walter Isaacson's uh, claim that he makes in the author's note that Elon Musk did not read the book before it was published. Mm. I think you know I think there's a lot of stuff in this book that you would want to go and uh, research a bit more yourself if you're interested in it anyway. So yeah, for sure it's not helpful to have that come out, but uh, don't believe the first thing you read. Okay, so let's try to separate the book from the person here and talk about the merits of of the book itself and not the man who is its subject. This is a 668-page biography. How much of Elon Musk's story do we learn from what Walter Isaacson reports? Yeah, so it it starts with his childhood. So he grew up in South Africa. He's the oldest of three children. He was clearly um, incredibly intelligent, but a little bit odd. He didn't have friends. Um, he was bullied in the playground. He was one time beaten so badly that he was in hospital for a week. Um, and when he got home at the end of that week, his abusive father made him stand there for an hour while he yelled at him and screamed at him and berated him and told him how stupid he was and sided with the kid who had beaten him up. Oh, my God. So this is the kind of – he didn't have a happy, pleasant, easy childhood. Um, there is a through line which sort of Walter Isaacson is is presenting saying this really caused him to grow up with not in any way the same kind of perception of risk mm-hmm. or feelings about taking risks that most of us have. Mm-hmm. It's also taught him that uh, when someone pushes you, you punch them back as hard as you can. And this is sort of something that you see in his personality and the way that he does business. So we learn about him that he goes from this childhood in South Africa where he is um, bright but lonely and bullied and that then he, when he's 17, he takes off by himself and he moves to Canada. He's able to go there 
because he can get a passport on his mother's side. Um, and, event, and he goes to Queens for a couple of years mm-hmm. and where he meets his first wife, actually. And then he uh, moves to the States. And then he uh, founds his first company. And then he makes lots of money. The money goes into the next venture and on and on. Yeah, he has a good run of, of very successful businesses. So what did you like about the book? I learned a lot from the book. Um, I think, you know, someone like Elon Musk has been so known for so long and certainly in the last handful of years um, since uh, becoming very active on Twitter and taking over Twitter, now X, and appearing on the Met Gala red carpet with Grimes. He's suddenly become very People magazine known as well as just uh, rich guy in charge of the electric cars known. Um, I found it very interesting to sort of learn more about the background of this person and to go through all of the steps and to really get a handle on all of the different companies that he is involved with. The breadth of uh, research in this book, I think, is extremely impressive. Walter Isaacson uh, shadowed Elon Musk for two years. And Elon Musk, um, though he did not read the book before it was published, fully cooperated with the writing of it. He encouraged his ex-girlfriends, ex-wives, friends, enemies, former co workers, former business partners, his estranged father. He encouraged everybody to speak to Walter Isaacson. And so all of those people are in the book. There's sort of uh, four pages of tightly printed uh, names of interviewees at the end. And what does it add up to in terms of the, the idea that you have of Musk as a person intellectually, the, the things he's curious about, the things that drive him? What's your impression of Musk based on the reporting that you that Walter Isaacson presents? Yeah, so I think... <laughs> The impression of him is that he is, as I said, like a man baby. He is this genius who also has no empathy for fellow humans. He has this kind of godlike mission to save humanity, um, which he is pushing forward through developing rockets that we can send to Mars, through having his vision to cover the world with his electric vehicles that can run on solar power. And this is all part of his vision to save humanity. In his mind, it is all, we have to save humanity. He's got 10 children, partly because he's worried that really smart people aren't having enough children anymore. So he's he's trying to deal with that. And he has 10, <laughs> 10 children. Um, and, uh, and yet, he cannot empathize with mm-hmm. an adult mm-hmm. human mm-hmm. who is standing in front of yeah. him trying to help him work on achieving his goal. And that's fascinating. Okay, Becky, you've read all 95 chapters of Walter Isaacson's Elon Musk, but what's your advice to listeners? Should they read it? If you're looking for analysis of Elon Musk, then you won't find it in this book. And that's what some of the reviews have criticized it for. I don't criticize it for that because what I took away from this book was that instead of Walter Isaacson choosing one of a hundred things that he could have chosen to interrogate more in terms of whether it be safety at a Tesla factory or the ethics of AI or self-driving cars or whatever it was. There's, There's a huge long list of things that he could have interrogated more. I liked that this book for me just presented in a very digestible way with these short chapters and the 95 chapters that it presented for me a picture to go and really mm. think about and ask more questions. And I think as a reader, it, asks you, it, it wants you to ask more questions. It's like, okay, 
this guy is the head of six companies. Mm -hmm. So whether or not he's a nice guy and a calm, measured guy, if I, who cares? <laughs> Let's talk about all the other stuff, right? And so the personality stuff is is really interesting, and it makes this book really great to read because it is a little bit startup manual, a little bit People magazine gossip, a little bit um, business book. But ultimately, it's sort of asking, I think, you to do a bit of the work and ask, ask some questions and say, okay, this is a lot of information. How do I feel about this? Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you're willing to do that work, you should read it. You should read it. Yeah. Becky Toyne, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks. See you soon. Becky Toyne is our day six book columnist. Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk is available at your local bookstore. be upstairs with the others i don't want to be with the others i want to know what that is you're playing it's called chess will you teach me i don't play strangers remember the queen's gambit it was a big deal back when we were all glued to our TVs during the lockdown in 2020. There was a suggestion that the show might be back with another season this fall. That turned out to be just another bummer of a social media rumor. And that's not the only disappointment you'll have with TV this fall. The Writers Guild of America has now been on strike for four and a half months. The actors joined them on the picket line two months ago. And that means that your autumn entertainment is going to look a little different, whether you're watching on cable or a streaming service. The good news is that there will be good stuff to sink into the couch with. So, to give us a sense of what we'll be missing and what we can still watch, I'm joined by culture critics Emil Niazi and Tayo Barrow. Emil, Tayo, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good to be back. Morning. Emil, as the writer's strike and the actor's strike drags on with no discernible end in sight, what will the impact on the fall TV lineup be? Well, I think that the biggest change for viewers, for audiences, is really going to be that hole in late night television. You know, I think we often take for granted what those shows do for us, but they really help contextualize and make sense of the news of the day, of the politics, of the social commentary. And going into what is sure to be, you know, a very interesting, very long, you know, political season in the U.S., you have this uh, trial that's happening with Donald Trump. This is exactly the, the type of moment that we want to turn to those late night hosts, you know, to, to sort of give us a laugh about what's happening, but also to crystallize the most important things. And I think that, you know, I certainly will really be missing that. And it's it's going to be one of the biggest sort of gaps in programming this fall. It's absolutely true. There will be a loss of political satire this fall, and I actually hadn't even thought about that. There's also the politics of the strike itself, because this week, Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher both announced that they are going to bring their shows back in spite of the strike. And there's been some backlash to that, Tayo. What do you think the impact will be on, the, on those shows and on the strike itself? 
I think we're really seeing a moment, you know, within um, this strike in Hollywood, but just in the larger labor movement in general, where people are really like everyday people are really tapped into what's happening. So I think the backlash against um, these shows and these figures is going to be strong. I think Drew Barrymore in particular, because she has so much goodwill and she's so well loved. And at the beginning of the strike, like if I remember correctly, she actually stepped down from hosting um, the MTV Movie and TV Awards in solidarity with you know striking workers so it is a bit strange i think people are surprised to see her kind of step back um vilmar as well i think what we'll see is people kind of you know putting the word out to boycott those shows but also a lot of just i think the public will be upset with drew barrymore and vilmar as people too and what do you think all this is going to do to us as viewers? Because during the pandemic, we had a close relationship with television, uh, and that, that lasted for a couple of years, really. Emil, do you think that the strike will change that? Do you think it will turn people away? Do you think they'll look for something else? Well, unfortunately, no, Brent, I don't. And I think that's one of the things that really are, are leading this strike is the fact that there is so much content out there. It's undervalued, especially by consumers. And, you know, you can just look at the false slate, the, the sheer amount of programming that is still coming out and is still going to be available, it almost numbs the consumer. And I don't think that we are feeling the hit as much as the, the writers and the actors on strike would like us to. And I think that that actually is, is sad and it's going to sort of hurt their battle. And, and one thing I would say about my concern with uh, Bill Maher and Drew Barrymore is that it could be a kind of a domino effect. And yes, there'll be some, you know, bad press in the beginning, but will it ultimately lead to further uh, strike breaking amongst shows? Okay. So with all respect to the writers and actors who are still on strike, let's dig into some of the content that's coming our way because there is a lot of it. As you say, Tayo, of the shows that will be back, of the shows that are returning, what one are you most looking forward to seeing? Of the shows that are coming back, I would have to say I'm most looking forward to The Fall of the House of Usher. Um, so that's the one directed by Mike Flanagan, who also did uh, The Haunting of Hill House and Black Mass and a lot of really um, cool shows on Netflix. And I think he is a director who thinks a lot about life and death and families and those kinds of dynamics and is really smart about that. So I'm really excited about this show. And of course, it's an adaptation of the um, Edgar Allan Poe short story. So that's on Netflix in, in October. Emil, yes. what about you? I'm also excited about a show that's returning. It's a bit of a smaller show that could really kind of use that word of mouth and word of mouth is what, you know, got it. It's acclaim in the first place. It's called Starstruck. Uh, it's a British show about, you know, a young woman living in London who starts dating this um, huge celebrity and it's very sweet and it's very funny. And that comes back September 28th on um, HBO Max or Crave here in Canada. I'm hearing a lot of people talk about sex education, how they've been waiting for that to come back. What about you two? Yes. Yes. Love I'm that show. Super excited for sex education. And it's his last season as well. So it'll be a, a bittersweet uh, binge when it comes out. Okay. Emil, you also had a horror series on your list aside from The Fall of the House of Usher. American Horror Story is in its 12th season. What has you excited about this year? And does it start with a K? It does start with a K. And there's two Ks, actually. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I can't help myself. I really am sort of hypnotized, like many people, by the Kardashians, particularly by Kim. There's been obviously a bit of controversy surrounding the fact that you know, she's sort of broken the strike acting in the show. Oh, yes. Um, and the new trailer has come out. And, 
it's been derided a little bit, but I can't, I just can't help it, Brent. I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be a a schlocky, the show is schlocky. I think it looks to be a very fun schlocky season. Tayo, are you tempted by the schlock? I am tempted. I'm not going to lie. American Horror Story has been a favorite of mine for years. But like Emil said, I think, you know, throwing in uh, a Kardashian component this upcoming season is just fits right in with the show's kind of like kitschy, sloppy, mm. like all the fun stuff in there. Um, don't appreciate the strike breaking, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to see if the show lives up to all the hype. Okay, there's a show that dropped on Apple TV yesterday, The Changeling, based on a book by Victor Laval. Ty, you, you've, you've chosen this one as well. What draws you to it? Um, honestly, Lakeith Stanfield was my first, um, you know, kind of draw to it. So he plays the main character in the show. And this is Lakeith Stanfield from Get Out and the TV show Atlanta. Fantastic actor. Um, and so also, I think the Rosemary's Baby vibes. Um, so it's a <laughs> sh- <laughs> that the show kind of brings um, really, really have me intrigued about it. I have had a chance to see a couple of episodes. And I can say that it does live up to sort of the, the energy of the trailer. Uh, but it's pretty much about this black couple who has a child um, and then we see there's a whole series of events without spoiling too much where their lives kind of go downhill as they try to build their future together so um, that one was really interesting to me and I'm I'm all for the kind of fairy tale horror vibes. Huh. Okay Emil you have a show that is based on a novel by Anthony Doerr it's called All the Light We Cannot See and that actually premiered at TIFF last weekend but it comes out on Netflix in November why is this going to be good? Well, the novel that you just mentioned won the Pulitzer. It, you know, it was really, really huge, very, very touching story about World War II. And it stars Mark Ruffalo and Hugh Laurie. Those are two actors that, of course, are going to get a lot of buzz. Um, and I think anyone that's read the book was so intrigued and so moved by that story. And so I really think this could be a very exciting, um, you know, Within this fall season, there's a lot of reality TV. There's a lot of competition TV. There's not a lot of prestige. And I think uh, they're really banking on this being one of those sort of anchoring prestige shows this fall. And so am I. A question for both of you, though. Is this the last of the prestige? Is the tap turned off after this season? Because then will we run dry of the stuff that's already been produced? I don't think so. I think that there's going to be a huge appetite after this sort of like fallow period to have some something like a succession. You know, we're really missing out on those big anchoring shows. So I think the networks are just holding back the stuff that they cannot get their stars out to promote. And we, I think we will see some great shows once the strike, fingers crossed, uh, is over. Taya, what do you think? Absolutely, I agree. I think there is always going to be an appetite for those really great prestige shows. Like if you think back to the 2008 strike, right after that, the landscape was kind of just like flooded with a ton of like trashy TV and reality TV had a big moment during that period. But mm-hmm. still, there was an appetite and viewers still had that appetite for the legacy TV that they were used to watching um, and that the studios were, you know, really producing. So I think what we'll see is there will be reaction to this, but I I think viewers' tastes haven't changed and there will still be an appetite for those shows. Okay, we're going to wrap up with two reboots. And the first one is yours, Ty, your final pick for fall TV. This comes out in October on Paramount+. Plus. Why are you excited about Fraser? <laughs> okay, the reason why I'm excited about Fraser is more of a nostalgia thing because I, <laughs> and I have to say, 
because I put this on my list, I do have to give a disclaimer. It does not look very good. <laughs> but the reason why it's oh. on my list is like, who can who can say no to Frasier, right? Like, it's a show that we all know and love. And I think, you know, the charm of Kelsey Grammer, just you never, that never goes away. Um, and that theme song is so great. So I think a lot of it for me, why this was on my list was just pure nostalgia. Um, and I think it'll be just a fun watch. Okay, and for you, Emil, this is not really a reboot. It's kind of an adaptation, but I'm excited about this too. Scott Pilgrim takes off on television this fall. Tell us about it. Yes, I am so excited. You know, especially living in Toronto, the original movie by Edgar Wright featured so many iconic places. Sadly, some of them no longer exist, like Honest Ed's. But this uh, animated version brings back the whole original cast. So Michael Sarah, Kieran Culkin, Anna Kendrick, Brie Larson, Aubrey Plaza, Jason Schwartzman. And, it, you know, I think it's going to really adhere to that that original story. So I think it's very exciting. It's a great sort of um, hometown thing to look forward to. An amazing cast. Emil, Tile, thank you for being with us today. Happy TV watching. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. You too. Emil Niazi and Tayo Barrow are both culture critics based in Toronto. Still ahead on day six, it seems counterintuitive, but video games could help a kid with ADHD. We'll tell you how they're being used as therapy coming up on day six. Many of those games require strategy. They require that kids think about what they do and they require that they learn from their mistakes. They're having fun. They're, they're engaged. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We're in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We are on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. It should be right in this area. Ah, There's one. It's a Pikachu. It's been a few years since we were all out on the streets catching Pokemon. But for a brief window, back in 2016, Pokemon Go was all the rage. I know, it was a simpler time. These days, if you see people pointing their phone at a tree, they probably aren't looking for a Pikachu. But that doesn't mean the safari is over. You never really know what you're going to see. You could go out and see absolutely nothing, or you could go out and see 20 different species in a few minutes. And something about that, that little bit of unknown, is really exciting. A lot of people took up birding during the pandemic, and a lot of them never hung up their binoculars. A lot of these other outdoor hobbies that people got into in during the pandemic, that interest level, like we know, um, has, has dropped since then. People are getting back into their normal rhythm, getting back to their normal hobbies. Um, but the interest in birding hasn't dropped. Once you're hooked on birds, it, it seems like you stay hooked on them, which is pretty exciting. Allie Smith is definitely hooked on birds. She works for the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in New York. She's the coordinator for Merlin, a popular bird ID app that's really taken off in Canada. Just in the last year, we've more than doubled the number of users that we've we've had. 
Just this year, in 2023, we've had 7 million people around the world use Merlin, and about 700,000 of those users are um, in Canada, which another way to look at that number is about one out of every 60 people in Canada have Merlin downloaded on their phones right now, which I think is pretty cool. Merlin is one of several bird ID apps out there, but it's unique in that it allows people to identify birds by their song. You can use Merlin to go outside and hold up your phone and whatever you're hearing around you, Merlin will identify. And this feature works right now on a total of 1,054 species around the world, um, which is pretty much everything that you could hear singing in Canada and the United States and Europe. It's almost magical. Like you go outside, you turn on your microphone and your phone is instantly telling you what it's hearing. Take that, Pokemon Go. And Merlin isn't just for birding noobs. The experts love it too. Oh, I'm using Merlin all the time. It's so fun. I recently moved back to New York um, from Georgia. I've been living in the southeastern United States in Florida and Georgia for the last six years or so and recently moved back up here. And I feel like in the time that I've been gone, I've like my brain has completely forgotten what northeastern birds sound like. So it's been a really useful tool for me to relearn the birds that live up here. Merlin is essentially a tool for citizen scientists and a way to get better at identifying birds on your own. But it's also a bit of a game. These apps have really opened up a whole new world to people of just realizing how much diversity there is, like whether it's just in their own backyard or in their neighborhood or beyond. And it's really, really fun to, to go out there and see what's out there. Just like with Pokemon, you know, got to catch them all. You got to find all the birds. There's so many different critters out here and they're all like totally magical in their own ways. And it's just really fun to, to see what's out there. And as the weather gets cooler, the birding is especially good. I mean, no matter where you are, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere right now, birds are on the move. Right now is fall migration. So I've been really excited because all of the birds that are breeding up in the boreal forests of Canada are flying south and are passing through central New York right now. And there's an environmental upside, too. If all you need to do is download a free app and go outside, like that's way easier than, you know, thinking you, you need to go buy a bird guide and binoculars and then you get out there and you don't know what you're seeing. Our main goal here, like our mission here at the Cornell Lab, is to conserve birds. And we know that people will only really protect what they care about. And people are only going to care about what they know about. So Merlin is a way for people to start learning about birds. And from there, we hope that people really start to care about them and help us protect them. Allie Smith is the Merlin coordinator for the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in New York. And if you want to know how well you can ID a bird, see if you can identify this one. That's the song of the most ID'd bird in Canada. If you don't already know what it is, I'll tell you at the end of the show. Of course, you could ask Merlin. I won't take it personally. You may have heard this for months, the drug Adderall has been in short supply. A combination of increased demand, staffing shortages, as well as regulatory and supply chain issues have all made the ADHD drug incredibly hard to come by. 
For about a year, there's been an Adderall shortage in the United States. Adderall is a name brand of mixed amphetamine salts used to treat ADHD. Health Canada says the shortage is not affecting this country at this time. In the U.S., diagnosis and prescriptions for ADHD increased significantly during the telemedicine days of the pandemic. Last month, the FDA released a memo acknowledging the shortage of stimulant drugs. It also listed some additional therapies it's looking into for kids with ADHD, including video games. The fact is that we can make these types of brain training tools adaptive and engaging in a way that other kinds of practice drill and skill types of methods don't work as well. Randy Coleman is a clinical child psychologist and the founder of Learning Works for Kids, a company that specializes in using video games to teach executive functioning and academic skills. And he says that video games, when done right, can help relieve symptoms of ADHD in kids. Randy, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thank you, Brent. Thank you for having me. You've worked with kids with ADHD for several decades. How long have video games been a part of your toolkit? Probably back into to the early uh, 2000s, maybe even in the 1990s, the mid-1990s, we began to look at how could we use video games to help kids. What I learned in my, in my clinical work was how engaged many of the kids we work with with ADHD and learning disabilities love technology and video games in particular. Well, a lot of parents fear that video games and screen time overall could harm their kids' brains. Can you explain how they're actually able to help? Sure. So video games practice a lot of what we call executive functioning skills. Those are the skills that underlie ADHD, like planning, being flexible, utilizing metacognitive skills, being able to organize things. And so kids are actually practicing those skills when they're playing games. So that's one way that they help. Now, there's lots of other ways as well, but that's the way that I've been focused on in my work. Does it matter what game they're playing, Randy? Is, is Call of Duty good enough? Or are you talking about specialized video games that are actually designed to address ADHD? I'm talking about popular video games. I don't ha- happen to love some of the more violent games. Call of Duty is probably towards the end of that. I particularly don't like some of the real violent games. I don't want to recommend that for kids to play. But many of those games require strategy. They require that kids think about what they do, and they require that they learn from their mistakes. And this, those are all these executive functioning skills that can help kids practice real-world skills for that matter. But but do you think executive functioning skills could be could be taught or could be learned in another way? I mean, what, what is it that a game can do that other therapies can't? Well, of course, executive functioning skills can be taught many ways and many very effective ways. I mean, there's many folks who are doing executive functioning coaching now. Teachers do that. Parents teach executive functioning skills by just working with their kids. Whether they're playing a game, like let's say they're playing Monopoly, they can teach the kids to be to use planning, to inhibit responses, to not buy everything, to think about what they're doing, for example. But there's lots of ways that, that games allow that to happen. And one of the advantages that games have, and why we're starting to see this in the field of digital medicine, is because they're so engaging. Mm-hmm. So kids do it. Uh, and, and now the FDA has actually approved a game for ADHD treatment. Can you, can you tell us how that game works? Sure. So that, that, that game is called Endeavor RX. And what, what that game does is it works on things a little bit differently. So it's not so much focusing on executive functioning skills. So what that game does is it engages these very specific cognitive networks to improve focus, 
to help with what we, what's called interference processing and to help with multitasking. So the, the, the things that are going on in the game require kids do things that can improve those sort of neuro, neuropsychological functions. And what do you see when you observe a kid interacting with that game for the first time? They're having fun. Huh. They're, they're engaged. I mean, it's, it's a challenging game. It's this particular game, and, and I think we're going to see more and more of these, is made to be a really good video game. The people who are developing these games and other digital medicines are no longer saying, hmm, let's, let's see if we can kind of create something that the kids will learn from. They say, no, let's start by building a video game that engages kids in, in certain types of ways. So it's fun, yeah. So, and, and what about a game that hasn't been created for that purpose? I mean, you have said that there are ways to make the games that kids play digitally nutritious. What exactly does that in, entail? What does it mean? I, I mean, the way I think about it is, imagine when you when you go to the supermarket and you buy an orange juice and you see the orange juice with calcium in it. Okay, hmm, that's a little bit more nutritious. Can we take some of the games where kids are using these skills and make them even more valuable to the kids? And that requires going out beyond the game. So, for example, a couple of games that we recommend frequently for kids to play are Minecraft and Roblox. Those games require all kinds of skills. I mean, if you've ever watched a child play Minecraft, it's incredible what they do. And we're trying to get them to take the thinking skills that they're using in the game and recognize those skills that they're using, mm -hmm. think about how they help them in the game, and how they can apply them in the real world. That's how we're talking about making these games digitally nutritious. We use a very simple ditty. We call it Detect, Reflect, Connect to help kids sort of recognize how those skills could actually help in the real and actually to try them out and apply them to the real world. In, in order to do that, in order to make these skills uh, complementary to, to, to the real world life that we all live in, how important is it that parents are engaged in these games when they're happening with the children? Well, Brent, you hit the nail on the head. Parents use their children's play to teach them things. I mean, right. if you if you have kids and they're on a soccer team and they come home and they lose and they're all frustrated, well, at least I would I don't I hate saying good parents, but good parents <laughs> use it as a teaching moment. Yeah. They use it as an opportunity to say, hey, you know, it's okay. Uh, you know, here's what you can practice next time. That's a tough team. But they, they use it as, as, as opportunities for teaching. For the most part, I, I would say up until maybe the last 10 years, very few parents really played games with their kids. It was about maybe 30% sometime around 2010. And I think it's gone up to about 40 or 45% of parents who are now engaged with their kids in gaming. So that's a key. You're right. And what about people who are skeptical, Randy? People who are saying that these games and, and these digital therapies are over-promising when it comes to results. What does the research actually say about the efficacy of video games in helping to address the symptoms of ADHD? So, Brent, let me just say, first, we're in the infancy of this. Or, you know, as a, as a Boston Red Sox fan, I would say we're in the, the top of the second inning. We've got okay. a lot of innings to go still. Okay, so we're learning about this. What, what I would say to you is that there has been some compelling research in the past that said that some of these things were overpromised, particularly some of the brain training games. Some of the research that's going on with the newer games is much better. These are, you know, well-controlled studies that suggest that these things happen. But the way to view this is to view this as an adjunctive sort of treatment for kids or an adjunctive tool. Nobody's saying this is going to cure ADHD. It's not. It's part of a treatment plan, if you will. So I think that you have to look at it like that. And it also has to target the skills that the kids need to work on. If the kids are already pretty good at certain types of things, it's not going to help as much. It's a little bit like if you take tennis lessons and you have a great forehand, but you need to learn your backhand, well, then you, maybe you want to focus the lessons, the, the practice on the backhand. 
I understand, Randy, that you're not a big gamer yourself, but but has your work convinced you that maybe you should be? Well, that's an interesting question, okay? So when you get to be my age, sometimes the games make you more dizzy than, than they, they do other things. I, I, I like the challenges of some of the games. When I, when I played, for example, Endeavor RX, I really enjoyed it, but I watched all my students and my graduate students work on it, and they were so much better than I was. It was like, uh, I don't know that, I, I don't know that I'm going to practice it. Although, although they, they are now coming out with new over-the-counter tool for adults, and I'm going to get... I'm going I'm to try that out and, and work with it. Adults should play. I think it's really important for adults to play because that's how people learn, especially kids. This is where the, the, the real key piece of this comes into play is kids learn from their play. So can we mm-hmm. enhance what they're learning from their play with video games? Randy Coleman, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Brent. It was really a lot of fun. Randy Coleman is a clinical child psychologist and the founder of Learning Works for Kids. And here it is, Riff from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Your cult with burning for you. Three Dog Night and Mama Told Me Not to Come, and Isaiah Rashad with SZA and Stuck in the Mud, and Wendy Dunlip from Newmarket, Ontario. Guess the headline that we're looking for Burning Man attendees trapped in the mud for days thanks to unexpected summer rain. Congratulations, Wendy. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. Skin and bones, skin and bones, skin and bones, don't you know? Skin and bones, skin and bones, skin and bones, don't you know? And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Riff from the headlines. Ah! 
And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Annie Bender, Mickey Edwards, and Yamri Tusfu Tedessa. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. It's two days till Parliament resumes, seven days to the first day of fall, and seven days till we meet again on day six. That's an American Robin, by the way. Thanks to Will Hirschberger and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for the recording. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.